So you can go ahead and turn to First Corinthians or Second Corinthians five, and as you do that, I, I want you to imagine. Now this would have to be imagining a couple of months ahead once your your gardens get going. But imagine you in a, in a few months' time as your your garden is producing fruit, you go out to your garden to to grab some vegetables to cook with your dinner uh, for that night. And as you go out, you know how when when your garden's going really good, it's it's grown over and there's a lot of greenery. Imagine you go out there to to pick a few vegetables and and they're kind of hiding in the undergrowth are a couple of bags. And you you notice right away that I didn't I didn't put those bags there. I don't know what they're doing there. And, and so you go and investigate and you grab the bags, you open the bags up to come to find that they are stuffed full. And you're just wondering what it's going to be stuffed full of. I don't want to let that pause go there. They're stuffed full of money. Now, just in case you might be thinking that, well, that's never going to happen, this actually did happen a couple of years ago up where we live. Um, very close to where we live in McHenry County. Um, a couple of, of Septembers ago, this very thing happened. A man went to his garden, found a couple of bags kind of hiding, stuffed full of money. In fact, about $150,000. So now the next question is, what is he going to do with it? In fact, even more important than him finding the money, and even more important than what he was going to do with this money he found, I think is, is why he did what he did. Now, I guess the two big choices are either keeps the money or he turns the money into the police. Well, he ended up doing what we would say is the right thing. He turned in the money to the police. But what's really intriguing about this story is the why. Why he turned the money in. He didn't turn the money in simply because it was the right thing to do. As, as the news story um, gave account, he turned the money in more for the purpose that he was afraid that either whoever did take the money and hid it in his garden for whatever reason that was, would come back and harm him or his family, or he was afraid that he would somehow be implicated in some crime that had been committed for which this money ended up in his garden. The motivation for why he returned the money is, to me, the really interesting piece of this very strange story. My purpose in sharing this is to not make any judgments about this man, but rather, rather for us to start to think about the role of motives in our lives. Even if it's not in a, in a very extreme, unique situation like the one that I just shared. But it, it gets to the heart of this issue that we all deal with, especially as, as followers of Jesus Christ. This issue of, of why do we do the things that we do? And this is the main question we're going to think about this morning. What motivates you? Why do you do what you do? 
If you are to look into your own soul, what is it that motivates you? At the core level of who you are, what causes you to do what you do? See, the reality is all of us are motivated, motivated by something. Every one of us. For basically everything we do, even though we're, we're not thinking about that specifically, but for every decision we make in life, there's something underneath that decision that's motivating us. What is it for you? I want you to be thinking about that as we, as we talk about God's word here this morning. And as we think about the many different things that can motivate us, of course we want to look at this with a Godward direction. We want to think about what God says should motivate us. And in thinking about this morning, that this morning, we're going to look at just a few verses from 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to focus mainly in on verses 14 and 15, but I want to read to give us a little bit more of the context. We're going to start reading from verse 11. And as you get ready, as we get ready to read, I want to just give you, kind of lay out the structure of, of the way we're going to go about this this morning. We're going to look at three things. Number one, what should motivate us. Number two, why this should motivate us. And number three, how this should change us. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 11. Here's what God's word says. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind... It is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now here's where we're going to focus in on. Paul says now, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So point number one, what should motivate us? As we look at our lives as followers of Christ, what is it that should motivate us? In these verses, we're, we're kind of getting an insider look at what motivated Paul, this apostle of Jesus Christ. And as we look at what motivated Paul and what he said motivated him, it should help us begin to think about what should motivate us in our lives as well. See, Paul, remember, he's, th he's this apostle to the Gentiles. And here he's talking to the people in Corinth about who he is and what he's about. Second Corinthians is a very personal letter of Paul's. And in much of it, he's kind of defending himself, his own apostleship, his own ministry, his own motives. Because it seems that that others have been saying things to the Corinthian church about Paul, trying to undercut and discredit him. Seems that people were saying things like, Paul really wasn't that important. They're saying he didn't really have authority from God. 
In fact, it seems from what Paul is talking about here in these verses we read that he, they're even questioning his own sanity. So what is it then that motivated Paul? And what is it then that should motivate us? Oh, Paul doesn't mess around. He usually doesn't. He gets right to the point. Verse 14. He says, For Christ's love compels us. When Paul deals with all that's going on and all that's being talked about and all that's being said about him, and he gets to the heart of how he's going to, in a sense, defend himself against the accusations that are coming towards him, he wants these people that he loves dearly to know, here's what I'm all about. Here's what my life is all about. Christ's love compels us. And the guys that are with him, this is what they're all about. Christ's love compels us. Now notice, just right from the get-go, that it's Christ's love for us, not our love for Christ, that really hits Paul here. And, and the reason why we need to take note of this right from the start is because I think most of the time when we think about doing stuff for God, what we would, I think our, like, if I would have thought of this ahead of time, this might have been kind of fun, I could have made up a a little questionnaire, then you would have thought it was pretty strange. You haven't met me yet to know. Um, You could still make that judgment if you want. I could have made this questionnaire to ask, you know, what, what motivates you in your Christian life? And maybe I could have given you a couple choices, but I, I would gather that most of us would tend to think that, that our love for God is the main motivator in our lives. But notice Paul isn't saying that. He's saying Christ's love compels him. It's, it's Christ's love for him that compels him. And this should be the same for us. Now to dig a little bit more into this, what we have to understand next is this word compels. What's in the NIV, the, the word that's used here that I'm reading from is the word compels. But this is translated a number of different ways in different Bible translations that some of you may have as well. And these different words help us to get the sense of what this word is getting at. In addition to compels, other versions put it, the love of Christ constrains us or controls us, impels us, urges us, overwhelms us, or lays hold of us. Does this help you to get a little bit more of a sense for, for what Paul's getting at here? The key thought is really this, that, that Christ's love for us is a, is a pressure Not so much a pressure to control us, but a pressure that causes action, that pushes us towards action. So this, then this love of Christ is is compelling motivation towards action for Paul. Now, now we've got to dig a little deeper and make sure we kind of clarify this, because we we start to talk about this idea of pressure 
And because we're all made differently by God, we all think about this in different ways. Some of us think pressure towards action is a, is a good thing, and some of us are like, I don't want to be pressured. That's not going to motivate me towards action. So I want to make sure we understand this. Because um, most of the time when we think about the concept of pressure, we don't think about it as a positive thing. We usually think of this as a negative motivation or an, a negative influence on us. Kind of like the pressure of a deadline or a due date, like at work or, or, or in school. You know, you've got that, you've got for that project at work or for the assignment in school, you've got that due date coming and you know it's there and the closer you get to that, the more pressure it puts on you. And I, I won't ask for you to raise your hands, but some of you are procrastinators, right? Some of you are the plan ahead kind of people. Um, there's the, this group that Dan was, was talking about of these group of pastors that were part of. One of the guys, he, he, he's got his whole sermon calendar planned out for like a year and a half. I am not that guy. But he, he, and actually, he spends a day, a couple days each week working on sermons like weeks in advance. And that, that whole concept is very strange to me. Like, I am, my mind doesn't work like that. I gotta, like, focus on what's this week. Because I'm afraid if I worked on stuff that's a couple weeks from now, that'd get all muddled and I'd end up preaching, like, three sermons on that particular Sunday. But some of you are like that. Some of you are the long-range planners. Some of you are the procrastinators. But that pressure that we feel coming up to a due date is kind of a negative kind of pressure. That's not the kind of pressure that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. The kind of pressure he's talking about is a good pressure. Rather than being a pressure that's based upon fear or something bad, this is the pressure of love. It's the pressure of a great love. Instead of being like the pressure of a due date or a deadline, it's much more like this kind of pressure. Some of you men who are married, maybe you can remember this. Do you remember the pressure that you felt leading up to the day that you were going to propose to your wife? Some of you might have to think back further than others for that, I recognize. But do you, do you remember that kind of pressure? You knew what was coming. You knew that that day or that evening, whatever the situation was, you had it all planned out. And so for every detail from from how your hair was combed to making sure your breath smelled good to even, like I remember, even making sure my car was clean. All the littlest details because of the pressure that you felt of wanting that moment to be just right, that pressure led you to action. This is the kind of pressure that Paul's talking about here. Now, here's the, here's the other interesting thing. Both of these kind of pressures get results, right? They both lead to results, but they're very different motivators. So what motivates you? What pressure is placed upon you that moves you to action? And in particular, with your relationship with God. There are many things, 
Again, there are many things that motivate us in our relationship with God, but not all of them are necessarily good motivators. Maybe just to run through a couple of them to help us to think. Are you motivated by guilt? Now we, we know we aren't supposed to be, but many Christians, when we get down to it, are motivated by guilt. Is guilt why you do what you do in your Christian life? Or maybe it's, it's a sense that you have to somehow earn God's favor or his love. Doing the right thing so that God will accept you and not reject you. Are you motivated maybe by what others think of you and the expectations that others have for you or that they, they put on you? Trying to live up to some reputation, whether it's, it's real or just thought of. Or maybe when you get down to it, you're motivated by just plain self-interest. Doing what you do because it makes you feel good about yourself. What we're seeing here in 2 Corinthians 5 is a different kind of motivation than these things. What we see here is a motivation of being compelled to action because Christ's love for us creates a kind of wonderful pressure on our lives. But why? What is it about Christ's love that would so affect Paul as to cause him to say that it compels him or moves him to action? Well, this takes us to our second point. Why this should motivate us. Why should the love of Christ motivate us, like Paul is talking about here? And I think what we need to think about and talk about here is, is this kind of some, some vague, generalized idea of Christ's love? You know, the kind of attitude of, you know, well, God, God loves everyone. And the kind of thinking that, you know, when it comes down to it, God has to kind of love us because... You know, that's what God does. He, he loves people. That's not what's being talked about here. That's not at all what Paul is talking about. That is not at all what Paul has experienced. This is not a general, vague view of the love of Christ at all. In fact, we're told exactly what this love is all about for the Apostle Paul. Look at verse, verse 14 again. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Now again, if you've been a Christian or a churchgoer for any length of time, it is so easy to just read through this verse and it's so familiar, it's so second nature to us that we might not even notice the depth of what Paul is saying here. So Paul is telling us that this motivating love for him is tied to a specific event that has deep theological and practical effects. This is a love that's not just talked about. This is a love that was shown. It's a love that was put on display, that was demonstrated for us to see and to be changed by. What is this event that Paul is talking about? 
What is this specific thing that he points to to prove the love that Christ has for him? It's the cross. It's the cross. See, Christ's love should compel us to action as we look to understand on a deeper and more ongoing basis what Jesus did for us on the cross. We are given the basic and key truth right here in just a couple of words. One died for all. One died. His name was Jesus. And he died for all. And again, in these few words are profound and life-changing truth. These words change the course of history, and they literally can change our lives if we will allow them to. Just think about it for a moment. And maybe it's been a while since you've considered this, but what a thing it is that God would die in your place and in my place. And I know, I know because I'm a churchgoer as well and have been for some years, I know how easy it is to let this slip through and not even realize what an amazing thing it is that the God of this universe would send his son to pay the penalty for your sins and to pay this penalty for my sins and to pay the penalty for anyone who would come to him in faith. Why would God do that? When's the last time you asked yourself that question? Why? Why, God, would you, why would you do that for me? He died for you. Jesus died for you. Please do not leave this place this morning without realizing that anew and afresh and making that personal for you. He died for you. You cannot escape that. Even if you would reject it, it is still true. It is still true. Jesus died for you. The next part of the verse says, it says, therefore all died. We are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. See, because Christ died for us, we died to our sins, is what this is getting at. The payment has been made for our sins and also we have now died to our sins in the sense that we are no longer enslaved by our sin anymore. See, the, the reality is, before Christ interceded and paid for us and broke the power of our sin, we do not have the ability to escape the clutches, the chains of our sin. Do you remember what that was like before you came to know Christ? Do you remember being so frustrated by your own bad choices? and even having a sense of wanting to escape from them, but realizing you couldn't? 
Now, some of you may maybe feel like, I, I know Christ now, and I still feel that way sometimes. But here's the difference. Before Christ's intercession, before his work in your life, you couldn't break free. But now, in Christ, for the first time in your life, you truly have the power to say no to sin. And I think sometimes that simple truth escapes us as followers of Christ. We just we simply forget, I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to live that way anymore. I've been bought and paid for. I belong to the King, the all-powerful God. And I truly have the power to say no to sin and to walk in the way of Christ. get back to this issue of why. Why would Jesus do this for us? Why would he do all this for us? Why would he humble himself to come to this earth as a person like us? Why would he stoop so low to take on human flesh and be like those who have willfully become his enemies? Because that's a good description of us. We've willfully become God's enemies. Why would he go even further than this, even to the point of dying in our place on a cross? And the answer, there are, there are a number of answers, but the one answer that I want to emphasize this morning for this question, because this is where Paul is going, is love. God's redeeming love for you. A couple of other places in the Bible make this so wonderfully clear. Paul also says in Romans 5, he tells it to us like this, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice that he doesn't die for the people who clean themselves up and go, God, see, I'm kind of a little bit better. No, Christ dies for the ungodly. And then it goes on to say, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God, he demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And just a side point of application, think of the worst person you know. Think of the most unlikely person Everybody turn around and look at those doors. Think about the most, go ahead, for real. Think about the most unlikely person in your life to ever walk through those doors. Christ died for them. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't, we don't have to clean up our lives for Christ to save us. He saves us and then he cleans up our lives. Maybe you should start praying for that person you just thought of. Maybe in the coming months or years, they will walk through that door. You see, Paul has been taken aback by the love of Christ. It has dramatically changed him. It has overwhelmed him. He literally can't get over it. 
the more I read of the Apostle Paul and the other biblical writers, they just, they're always talking about the cross. It's like, come on, guys, you know, we've heard this all before. And maybe you think that. And getting to know Pastor Dan a little bit, I think he probably emphasizes the cross of Christ as well in his preaching. Maybe some of you are even kind of like, okay, we've heard this about the cross before. We know this. Can we move on? Notice, these men of God who have been entrusted with writing down the words of God in the Bible, they don't move on. There's no moving on for them because this is everything for the Christian life. John as well says this in 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16, it's easy to remember. It's John 3.16, you just put 1 John with it. This is how we know what love is. You want to know what love is? Our world needs to know what love is. Correct? Would you agree? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's how we know what love is. So Paul and John and the others, they can't get over it because this is everything for them. Everything in their life is about the cross of Christ. It's about the gospel of Jesus. You see, the reality for Paul and for us, when we see it rightly, is when somebody does something like this for you, especially when you don't deserve it, and even more when you, when you've, what you do deserve is, is nothing good but bad, and what you do deserve is punishment and payback, when someone even then does something so gracious, this kind of love cannot help but push you towards action. There's a television show um, that was on a few years ago that my wife and I enjoyed watching from time to time. And any time we mention a TV show, I'm not endorsing everything that's been communicated by this TV show, of course, but the show is called Flashpoint. And it's about... Um, a team of, I think they're called the SRU, Strategic Response Unit, kind of like the special forces of the police um, in Canada. And in this particular episode, um, what was going on is th there's a father who had a daughter who needed a heart transplant. And she was on the waiting list for a heart transplant. And already one time they had kind of had a false alarm. They had gotten the call to come, we've got a heart for you, and then it turned out uh, it, it didn't work. That had already been in their history. And then they get this call again. Months down the road, they've got a heart. Come to the hospital right now. So they, they load up and they go to the hospital filled with hope and excitement. And what happens when they get to the hospital is devastating they find out that there's been some kind of administrative mix-up. And in fact, this man's daughter isn't, she's not correctly the one who is going to get the heart. And, and they actually see there in the, on the floor of the hospital the man who's getting prepped to go in for surgery. He's an older man. And he's the one who's rightfully supposed to get the heart. But imagine how this dad must have felt to know this, there's a heart right there and his daughter's health is failing. And so he goes off the deep end. He snaps. And he, he 
rushes a security guard and wrestles his gun away from him and takes the whole, f- the whole medical floor hostage because if he, he's got to get that heart for his daughter. So that's what he does. At, at one point, even thinking, you know, the way I can secure this heart for my daughter is if I kill this man. If I kill this man who's going to be wheeled into surgery, I can certainly now move my daughter up and she'll get the heart. He actually put the gun to that man's head. Well, the team members of this strategic response unit, it's their job to, to defuse the situation. They have to actually crash through the windows in dramatic you know, Hollywood fashion and they, they take the man down. And so, you know, in the arc of Hollywood storylines, you think, okay, now... The story's over, but in fact it isn't because it cuts to the next scene and all the viewer is shown is the old man on the the cart getting ready to be wheeled into surgery whispering in the ear of one of the medical staff. And in very good form, the next scene... There's no words said. You just see the daughter being wheeled in for surgery. And we're, we're told what's happening. The old man has given up his place. And he's given this heart that would save his life over to this girl. Now what do you suppose the dad, who's now in some jail, but I'm sure will find out the news, What do you suppose he would do for that man? For that older gentleman who should have gotten the heart? And not only did he do this, just disconnected from the situation, but this dad had put a gun to his head. This older man not only should have not done something good, but he should have tried, we would think he would have done something bad back. He would have tried to repay this man. So even with that, what do you suppose this father would do for this man? What would you do for this man? See, this doesn't even scratch the surface of what God has done for us. But it it gets to some of the points that help us to realize what he's done for us. Because we have not done good for God. That's one of the mistaken notions of our day. It's really one of the mistaken notions of human existence, if we're quite honest. We have not done good to God. We have done bad towards God. We deserve nothing good from God. We deserve only punishment and payback from God, rightfully. He is right and good to judge us and to spill out his wrath upon enemy sinners like us. I know that's not a nice thing to say and it's not a popular thing to, to say in our day, but that's the truth of this book. But yet, even though that is true, God initiates his saving love to rescue people like us who could never do anything to save ourselves from our condition. This is what God has done for us. 
So our last point, and this will be brief, is how this should change us. What should motivate us? Why this should motivate us? And now, how this should change us? See, when Jesus does what he has done, the whole point that is being made here is that there's no way this should, ha- this should take place without an effect on us. And not just a minimal effect where we go to church on Sundays where the, the rest of the world doesn't. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. It's a good thing. We're glad you're here. Of course. But this should have a life-altering effect on people. Should it not? Would we not all agree with that? Jesus, the very Son of God, has died for us. And let, let me just ask you, has the meaning of that faded for you over your Christian life? I know what that's like. I've been a Christian for over 20 years. Sometimes it just fades. We know we're supposed to feel more about it, but we just, for one reason or another, we don't. But this change should happen at the very core of who we are. Look at verse 15. Let's read it all together. Verse 14 again. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all. Look at this. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, if Christ has revealed his grace and love to us in such an overwhelming way, it cannot help but change us. That's the, Paul that, the point that Paul is making here. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says this simply, and his grace to me was not without effect. It's like the understatement of Paul's day. His grace to me was not without effect. It had a huge effect. And it should have a huge effect on us. It should change the very orientation of our lives. It should change the key motivator in our lives. Taking us from being people who live for ourselves. Because doesn't that summarize our life Without Jesus, it's all about me. Do you find yourself saying that as you observe the world? Whether it be in small places like the way people drive on the road and being willing to cut you off if it means getting where they want to go or bigger ways in terms of relationships. Just find ourselves thinking, man, people are just out for number one themselves. And Paul is reminding us here that Jesus, through his work on the cross, changes us at the core of who we are. So we move from being people who live for ourselves to being people who no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So what about you? What about us? The question all of us need to ask is this. Does the love of Christ compel us like what we see described here? Let me answer it for me, and maybe for some of you. Because I suspect for at least 
a good number of us, the answer would be, well, yeah, but not really. You don't, even have to, don't make any moves because you don't want to let anybody on that you're with me on that. But I know you are because I am like that. And I'm a pastor for goodness sakes. But that's the response some of us have. We, we dig in. We love to, to study the Bible. We see that this is the way to live. But when it, we see a passage like this, sometimes the frustrating thing is, man, does this motivate me like the Apostle Paul? I want it to. But it doesn't always. It's frustrating. It's frustrating as a pastor, too. You know, when I was at Eureka Bible, a lot of what I did was, was youth ministry. And sometimes, man, I just, ooh, man, I just wanted to get out a two-by-four and, and I want to crack people in the head to get them to see how important this stuff is. I never did actually do that. Probably wouldn't have been there for 11 years if I had. Um, and that, that's one of the frustrating things, either as a pastor or as somebody who cares about other people or cares about myself in the right way before God. Sometimes we can know the truth, but it just doesn't affect us like we wish it did. So if that's you to some degree or other, if, if, if your response to the gospel as a Christian or as a churchgoer is kind of ho-hum sometimes, let me just finish up by giving a few possible reasons for why this might be. First is this. Maybe you don't belong to Christ. And th that's the question that can't be overlooked. Is maybe you don't actually know Christ. Maybe you don't have a real relationship with him. And so that's why the gospel doesn't affect you like it should. Maybe there's never come a time in your life where you've, where you've laid yourself down and, set, and realized who you are before God and cried out to him for forgiveness and grace and mercy. And if you're at that point, see, here's another place where I can know that can happen. That was me. I came to Christ as a 17-year-old, but before that, I was a leader in my own youth group, and I wasn't a Christian. Like, everybody else looked up to me for my Christian faith that was fake. So I know that can happen, even in the church. So don't mess around with that. If you have never truly given your life over to Christ, then please talk to Pastor Dan. Talk to your elders, the others in your church that, that know Christ and that you respect and trust. But secondly, and closely related to that, maybe you think you know Christ, but you don't. And what I mean by that is that it's very, very similar, but just because you come to church every week or just because you've come to church for a long time or just because you grew up in a Christian home, to state the obvious, but sometimes it it's, needs to be stated, that doesn't make you a Christian. It just doesn't. Don't make that mistake. Maybe that's the reason why it's ho-hum is your, your heart is still apart from Christ. But for most of us, we've, we know we belong to Christ, and that's the frustrating thing. We know we know Jesus, but it doesn't make as much difference as we think it should. 
And here's the third thing for me to share with those who are in this group. Maybe we've lost sight of the cross. Maybe we've lost sight of how important the cross is for all of the Christian life. Maybe we've got caught up in our own hobby horses, whether that be the particular kind of Bible study or the end times or, or just the ministry of the church itself or, or Bible study. Again, which these are all good things, but if they become primary and, and enter the place that the center point is, which is the gospel, it can drive us to distraction and it steals the power and the joy and the hope that our lives are, should be tied to in Christ. Or here's the mistake a lot of Christians make. We think the gospel, we would all agree the gospel is ultimate importance to save us. But then when it comes to living out the Christian life, we think there's other things to move on to. And there's not. See, the gospel of what Christ has done for us on the cross is the center point of the wheel. All the spokes of the Christian life flow out from that. There is no moving on. And if you've thought that moving on is a good idea, let me just help you to see it's not. It's not. So if one of these three things or something in between or other describes you, there's, here's my simple point of application. Repent. It's a, it's a biblical category. And I know that's a muddled category. Remember, I grew up in central Illinois, and not to name anything, but the, the whole idea of repentance is, is kind of a muddled thing in this area because of some of the things that other churches teach. Repentance is a very simple thing in the Bible. It's simply turning. And it can happen now. And for some of you, that might be what you need to do this morning. To simply turn and change your course. And come back to Christ fully. Again, that's why it's good to know Dan's here and your elders are here to help you in that process. Christ is everything. I won't get into it, but I'm an unemployed pastor right now um, since February. And it's It's been a real trying time in my life. But it's cool to be here this morning, to be able to have this opportunity, because it's a good reminder for my own soul that Christ is everything. Even more important than pastoral ministry for me, more important than anything else that you might put in that place. He is everything. His love for you cannot change. And that is an extremely wonderful motivator. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. God, thank you for the power of your gospel to change lives. And we know that because even if our lives haven't changed to the degree that we would hope they would have, we've seen in our own lives and in this church These people have seen the lives of each other changed because of the gospel. Help us to dig deeper into it and trust more fully in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name.